Hey folks, welcome to another edition of the Skiff Podcast. This is the start of the year. I wanted to bring on a guest that will help decipher one of the biggest question marks in global tourism. What the hell is happening to Chinese and China tourism? It's a question that a lot of us tried to figure out during 2023 when China reopened. I don't think we have definitive answers, but if anybody can read the tea leaves, it's Gary, who's our guest today. Gary Bowerman, who's the founder of Check in Asia. I've known Gary pretty much through the pandemic a little before that as well. He's been in Asia as a travel analyst, has written books about the Chinese traveler, has been writing a newsletter about the Asia travel economy during COVID and post-COVID as well. It does podcasts around all of this. So he's very deeply immersed in what's happening with China in Asia and then rest of the world. So welcome, Gary. Rafat, hey, great to chat to you. As you said, the, the biggest conundrum in travel, and you and I haven't discussed this for a couple of years. So yeah, there's plenty to talk about, right? There's plenty to talk about. So let's start with the state of... Uh, which is where are we in the evolution of Chinese tourism since it reopened uh, was is about a year ago now? Yeah, well, p- perfect timing, exactly a year. You know, the 8th of January was when China reopened or began to reopen. Uh, and you said, you know, we've been trying to decipher this for a year. I mean, I think we've been trying to decipher it for three years. You know, it was China was closed for three years and we've had this first year, which really is a year of learning. I think Everybody in the travel industry, everybody around the world, Chinese travelers themselves, the Chinese travel industry has learned a great deal about the Chinese government and the way that it controls travel and tourism over the past year. Uh, And that's starting to filter through. And, you know, a year later, we're at a stage where I would say, particularly in Asia Pacific, you know, the the Chinese outbound market is so important to Asia Pacific, about 90% of all Chinese travelers that go outside of the mainland stay within the Asia Pacific region. So it's been so important. But obviously, a year ago, when China reopened the 8th of January last year, expectations were really, really high, that automatically we'd press and play and go back to the 2019 levels, you know, when China was the dominant figure uh, in travel and tourism. That hasn't happened. But we've seen gradual growth through the year, which we can talk about in a moment. And I think right now, at the beginning of 2024, if you talk to people in the Chinese travel industry, there is a much greater sense of optimism that 2024 will be a stronger year than 2023. There were so many factors that were limiting growth last year. So, uh, and you and I exchanged email on this before we're talking now, and your point of view is that you cannot look at the reopening of Chinese tourism divorced from the geopolitics of it. And so explain... Obviously, the the geopolitics of how the world views China has changed during COVID and post-COVID as well. So give a sense of how they're intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say you can't divorce Chinese tourism from trade and diplomacy. The the Chinese government has been very clear about this in in 2017, 2018, 2019. It had the world's largest outbound market. And it was prepared to use that in leverage, in trade discussions, in diplomacy, uh, not just in Asia Pacific, although specifically in Asia Pacific, but also worldwide. So that's really where we were at as the as the gates came down for COVID nineteen. You know, we had this world's largest outbound market, and China was really using this uh, in trade and diplomacy. When the go- the gates started to come up a year ago, you know, China was very very wary to not 
allow Chinese travelers to go out all at once because it realized that demand will be quite low. Uh, the, the, uh, the aviation industry, the, the OTAs in China weren't ready either. So it wanted to phase this back across the year. And by doing that, by phasing it back across the year, allowing countries worldwide uh, on a phased basis, beginning in February, then March, and then August, to accept group travel, which is, you know, is the, 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 the composite, really, of the outbound market, which most people talk about. Um, that then uh, opened up the gates to start negotiating on things like visas, as we've seen in, in recent weeks, and we can start talking about that, but also on trade policy. You know, China right now has a lot that it wants to sell to the world in travel and tourism. It wants to sell its high-speed rail technology. It wants to sell its new passenger jets. Uh, and so we, as we start to see China unroll uh, this tourism policy, um, it will be closely, even ever more closely linked uh, to travel and trade. And I think what we're seeing right now, you, you, when you messaged me, we were talking about inbound and how China's, uh, you know, offered these uh, incentives, uh, visa-free travel to. Well, it started with six countries. Now it's loosening the ties with Thailand, the U.S., uh, Singapore. You know, this is a sense of of real politic. I think how the world has changed since COVID, as you said. Uh, China realized it couldn't just use leverage its outbound market anymore. You know, it has to look at all different aspects of inbound, outbound and trade policy as well. So um, we have obviously covered the outbound market you have covered for a decade more at this point. Uh, inbound into China, outside of obviously the business travelers going into China for um, all kinds of business around the world, hasn't been a big topic of discussion or much written about is it a has have things why wasn't it before covid and why now post covid yeah that's a good question so you're right i mean the primarily the inbound market was seen as the business traveler market the leisure market people who go into china to do business taking extra time uh, conferences trade meetings that kind of thing and then spending more time and also i think china was is is very much seen as a um, as a destination that you either want to go to or you don't want to go to. There's not much floating voter for, for China, you know, as opposed to Thailand or countries in Southeast Asia. Um, there are a lot of perceptions about what China is about, as you know, in the Western world. Yeah. So inbound market was never really focused by the Chinese government too much. And one of the reasons for that is that the cost of a visa was quite expensive to get into China. You know, it was quite difficult and it's quite bureaucratic to get a visa. Um, I think what's changed now is that China actually has enshrined in its latest five-year policy of the government that it wants to boost inbound tourism. It wants to focus more on the three pillars of travel and tourism. So inbound, domestic, the domestic market is booming. You know, it's really, really strong right now. We can talk about that. And the outbound market. And I think it realizes that, that this is the way the world thinks now. It can't really just leverage its outbound market. It needs to have all three pillars to present a different face to China in the world. As you said, the world has changed. Perceptions of China have probably got a little bit darker, particularly in the Western world. And this is China opening up and showing its face as a, not just a tourism, but as a lifestyle, a technology. Um, you know, people that go to China will see that China has changed a great deal in the past five years, in particular over the last three as well. So we'll come to domestic in a second, but just uh, continue to focus on inbound. I guess Singapore was the first one. It was a beneficiary, you said, of, uh, of Singapore's support of China over the years. Uh, you said Malaysia and, and a few other countries have... V so... The way I read it, there's sort of three buckets of these visa loosening. One is visa waiver starting December 1st to to next year. So actually, my question is, why why are they doing it in, in like only for a year? Is there like some some something I'm missing or this is just a trial period that they're doing? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. So the first six countries that you mentioned that were were announced on visa waiver for a year um, was Malaysia, which is uh, an Asian country, of course. Malaysia quickly reciprocated and waived its visa for Chinese travelers. And then five countries in Europe, which are Schengen countries. Uh, so those are Germany, Spain, Italy, Netherlands, and one other, I can't remember the other one is, but five right. Schengen countries. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. And one of the issues over the past year particularly the Chinese outbound travelers going to Europe, is the backlog for Schengen visas and how long it's taken um, for Chinese to get visas and you know the limits have been reached. So a lot of Chinese travelers couldn't go to, to Europe this year. So you wonder really whether this was a push towards the Schengen, the, the lead nations of Schengen to actually shake up their, their policy. And you know, the Chinese media has called this very, very specifically a unilateral policy, you know, China showing its benevolent face that you can come to our country without a visa. As of yet, we can't come to your countries without a visa. And as you said, that's a year um, pilot scheme. But then you look at some of the other countries that it's cherry picking in Southeast Asia. You mentioned Singapore. Uh, Thailand has just been announced in the last couple of days. And that, Thailand's going to be a permanent visa waiver in both directions. Singapore looks like that will happen as well next year. So it's, you know, it, it's going to be all things to the way that China wants to implement this. I don't think there'll be across the board uh, policies. It will look at different countries in different specific um, elements of trade and negotiation on diplomacy. Gary, coming back to the bucket. So there was visa waiver um, for a year, permanent visa waiver, taking away requirements during the visa process, which is the US part. And then there's the transit visa, which is you go for six days and you can, if you're going to a third country, you can stay in, in China for six days. That is now expanded to, I saw some 54 countries or something. Yeah. So we talked about the visa waiver thing. Talk about this requirement stuff. Does it make it a lot easier for US visitors to come to China? It removes some of the bureaucracy. So it removes the actual, the front end when you're actually trying to get your visa. You know, you don't have to show your, your airline tickets or your upload your airline tickets or your hotel uh, details, that kind of thing. Um, but it's kind of cosmetic, you know, whether it actually has a big impact, we don't know. But this, this I think the thing is with visa waivers, I mean, you, you, I think you've discussed this on, on, on SCIF before, is that visa waivers, governments, particularly in Asia Pacific, tend to think that they have an instant impact, but there's always a time lag. And whether they actually, this will prove its worth over the next 12 months, we'll wait and see. You know, a lot of the media right now is talking about, you know, there's been an initial impact from countries of Europe going to China. And, you know, that kind of stuff is just nonsense media reporting. That kind of thing is irrelevant. You, yeah. you can only really track this over a period of time. Over a period of time and also just holidays and random stuff. You don't Exactly, know. exactly, yeah. Uh, and I guess the third bucket is this transit thing, which um, which I suppose long-term um, has has an effect in terms of like you you have, a, if you're transiting to through a third country, uh, you can stop in China for like six days or um, obviously a sh short time. But still, um... yeah, I mean, the, the transit visa was it was in place before the pandemic. So this isn't essentially new. My feeling is that's a platform for it to then to start negotiating with some of those countries to do bilateral uh, agreements where it gets, you know, different visa rights um, inbound and outbound. So um, let's talk about domestic. So domestic, uh, the new year uh, long holiday just ended uh, in China and, and elsewhere. Uh, numbers are uh, way above even 2019, I suppose. Um, so inbound tourism, uh, sorry, domestic tourism is definitely back and government is very, very keen on encouraging it, which I also want you to talk about the, the slowing Chinese economy and sort of what are the fears of the government that way? 
Right. So one of the reasons that the economy has been booming, uh, the, the, the tourism, domestic tourism economy has been booming is that most of the airlines are flying domestically. You know, I think it's only about 7% of, of, of international, 7% of air capacity in China is international at the moment. 93% of it is domestic. And it's a huge air market. It's the world's second largest air market after the United States. Right. So at the moment, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to fly within the country. And also the, the high speed rail network has become hugely popular during the pandemic. You know, it's, it's nationwide, it's the world's largest, and it's very, very easy to travel now. Um, so those two are having a big impact on the supply, and it's helping travelers to travel. I think in terms of the outbound market, why has it been so strong this year? And why has international been relatively weak? I think there's a number of reasons that you mentioned the slowing uh, economy. That's for sure that that's an impact. You know, you look at uh, youth unemployment is very, very high, reached around about 21 percent in January, uh, in June, um, to the point where the Chinese government actually stopped publishing the official data. So the economy has impacted younger people who are travelers, you know, definitely. Uh, the, the, the tech economy has slowed down. A lot of the big tech companies have shed a lot of staff over the past three years. That's a big factor as well. But I think there's also... Asia Pacific was approached COVID and experienced COVID very differently to to the West. You know, it's taken a lot longer for for Asia Pacific to to regain its confidence. China, the longest, it was the first in and last out. You know, it didn't only open as you said a year ago, and the confidence to travel, particularly at the beginning of the year in China, was relatively weak internationally. And that's not the only country. If you look at the Japanese outbound market, for example. If, if you compare the number of Japanese outbound travelers this year, I think it's the, the lowest for something like until the, since the 1990s, the early 1990s. So it took, it took Southeast Asian countries, Northeast Asian countries a, a while to rebuild confidence more than in European or North American markets. And I think the Chinese market as, you know, this, this pillar of Asia Pacific travel, the largest market, you know, we see that lack of growth so much more evidently than you do in a lot of the other markets. I th my feeling is that we will start to see a stronger growth in 2024 from outbound perspective. Um, most of that will be in the Asia Pacific region. But whether we'll get back to 2019 uh, numbers is hard to say. And I think one of the things that COVID has taught us in Asia Pacific is to be wary of making predictions because, you know, things have, have changed just dramatically over the past four years. Yeah. And what, I don't know if you have a sense of like, what's holding back airline capacity? Is it, uh, it I guess it has to start with not enough planes available, um, but also the, the bilateral opening of flights. Um, I don't know, again, it's part of the geopolitics of it. Yeah, it's a really good question. There's a whole bunch of things. So in terms of the, 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 from the Chinese airlines in particular, the group market, really, because the group market didn't really reactivate very, very quickly. As, as you remember, Rafa, there were 20 countries that were allowed to accept uh, group travelers from China back in February. That was increased in March, another 40 countries. But it wasn't until August when there was another like 70 countries, which were some of the big markets, Japan, Australia, South Korea, UK, US, right. um, that they were allowed to accept group travelers from China. Although the group travel market was still trying to work out how important it is in future is very, very important to the airlines in terms of their planning uh, right. and their route planning and their service planning. Right. Um, so that was one of the factors. Um, the other factors I would say would be just the airline, um, when they're planning their international routes, they, they track demand and demand just wasn't there in the beginning of the year. You know, right. China's, Chinese international airlines started the year last year, 2023, at about 10% of their international capacity 
from 2019. And it takes time to rebuild that. I think they're up to around about 60%, which is pretty strong growth over the year. But it still means that, you know, 40% of the market is still missing. So yeah. hopefully most of that will come back next year. Um, so I think those are, those are the key factors. And those planes have been flying domestically. But, you know, it has had an impact on the Chinese airlines. If you look at their their share prices year on year, you know, they're, they're down quite considerably, although they've been making profits this year for the first time. Now, they want to be they want to be flying more internationally because that's that's the lucrative markets. So yeah. those are key factors, I would say. Um, on the hotel side, I don't know if you track um, the hotel market one within China and then obviously the groups um, outside China. I, I remember, I think Hyatt said in the earnings, the, the numbers aren't there yet in terms of international Chinese travelers arriving. This is consistent to what we just spoke in terms of hotel groups not getting as many Chinese travelers outside of China, outbound. Inside China, I know Hilton, I think the CEO said that he's very bullish, continues to be bullish on uh, the China pipeline that they have. So I wonder if you have a sense of um, of the hotel uh, growth market within China. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the pipelines are strong. They're reactivating. You look at, uh, you mentioned like some of the international chains are reactivating their pipelines, but so are the Chinese brands as well. You look at brands like Huazhou, um, and its pipeline is huge. You know, it's, I think it's the amount of uh, new hotels that it put on its pipeline last year was more than any other year. So, you know, that that is growing. And that pipeline is moving into sort of the third tier cities and fourth tier cities, you know, a lot of the major cities, as you know, Rafa, they're quite saturated now across all brands. If you're in Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing, Nanjing, Huang, uh, uh, um, Hangzhou, those cities have pretty much everything. Um, but you're now seeing a lot of the brands looking at their, not just their budget or their economy, but their mid-level brands. And, and there's a lot of capacity in some of the third and fourth tier cities. And that's where we'll see growth over the next few years. And, you know, demand is there. I think that's one thing that's been proved during the pandemic is demand from travelers in lower tier Chinese cities really, really grew. And that's where the OTAs and the Chinese hoteliers really focused a lot of their marketing during the pandemic because they wanted to grow their bases. You know, they all had to turn inwards. They, they, they couldn't look at outbound travel for three years. So they had to turn inwards and they had to build new, new capacity in, in their customer bases. And that was in the lower tier cities. Um, speaking of the OTAs, um, how important is a player like Trip.com, I guess now used to be called C-Trip, um, b- every story that we do or the numbers we see about China really source from like Trip.com. So I wonder like, what is the role of OTAs? Government clammed on, on, on a bunch of them a few years ago. So really sort of, I guess Trip.com emerged as the winner in that clamping down uh, on on tech players in general, in, including the online travel players. Yeah, absolutely. So you look at that, the, the big three, I would say, you know, you have Trip.com, you have Meituan, and you have Fliggy, and both the parent companies, as you mentioned, the clampdown, both the parent companies of Meituan and Fliggy were sanctioned during COVID-19, you know, the, 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 when that the big tech, tech clampdown happened. Um, but they've also sort of moved in different directions. Meituan is very, very strong on domestic hotel bookings, probably the strongest right now. But C-Trip was always the most internationalized of, of those um, big OTAs. There are other ones like Tongcheng, which has quite uh, strong ambitions to to, to um, accelerate this international growth, Tunio as well. But it's been a difficult year for them because they've mostly still been focusing on the domestic market. And if you look at their their stock prices over the last year, I mean, C-Trip is probably pretty stagnant, but the other ones are, are, are way, way down. And if you go back to September, this I think was one of the most interesting things back in the beginning of September, C-Trip announced its half year 
earnings. Um, and it really disappointed the market. And you watched a, a big slide in its share price through about the end of October. And uh, one of those reasons was something that you said earlier, because the, the business market just hasn't really recovered the outbound Chinese business market, which is pretty important. Um, and, you know, this actually, CTRIP said this in its earnings call. And I think that kind of set alarm bells ringing that the economy is perhaps weaker um, yeah. than perhaps the travel industry was trying to, to, to portray. Do you think the the business travel inbound business travel market will recover as much people coming to China for business reasons? China still being the world's biggest manufacturer of everything in the world, uh, even though there's attempts to obviously diversify the uh, to to India, for instance, Apple Apple is doing that with with manufacturing iPhones in India, etc. Yeah, exactly that. So so what happened as soon as China reopened? You look at you know the the leading. Uh, executives of pretty more all companies around the world rushed to China, you know, to, to, to reanimate their, their relationships. You've seen that throughout the year, the business travelers from major companies have been in and out of China, and it's reanimating a lot of its conferences and its, uh, its tech sector uh, and its, its, its meetings and incentives business. Um, but you're right, the world has changed since COVID. You know, India is a much stronger pair. Vietnam is a strong player now. Indonesia right. is emerging as a very, very strong economy in Southeast Asia. So we are going to see uh, over the next decade, the next 20 years, you know, China's dominance of the region will probably still be there because it is the major player, the superpower. Um, but you will see much more pocketing uh, of, of outsourcing around the world. And, you know, in the US, you've got a lot of backsourcing. You know, companies are coming back to countries. Right. You're seeing that in Europe as well. So that the whole trade um, landscape of Asia is changing. But the growth is there and the growth for Asia's economies going forward will be generated mostly within Asia. And the dynamics of that will come from India and China. Do you think the the sort of the, the I guess the two wars that are going on right now, the Ukraine-Russia war and then what's happening in Israel-Palestine, um, do those have an effect on the, I guess, Russia being, I guess, closer geographically speaking? Um, does that affect the Chinese market at least in tourism perspective, I mean, certainly, I'm sure it affects from the economy perspective. Certainly affects the airlines because most European airlines, international uh, American airlines can't fly over Russia, whereas the Chinese airlines can. Um, right. So there is that impact, definitely. And that means that, you know, anybody flying from Europe, Finnair is a good example. You know, Finnair used to be able to fly over the top of Russia uh, into, into yes. China. Uh, and in that, it, it can no longer do that. The American airlines can't fly directly. And you, if you go back two or three months when Chinese and the U.S. airlines were negotiating on access rights between the two countries, you know, the U.S. airlines would say, well, it's unfair because you have much quicker access to the U.S. because um, you can fly across Russia. So, you know, these issues are going to continue. In terms of the, um, the Palestine, in terms of the Israel and, and Gaza issue, I think we just have to wait and see what happens in terms of um, the escalation of that. You know, China, the difference with ch those two conflicts in terms of China's role is that China wants uh, the Gaza-Israel conflict to stop because it's in, it has so much interest in the Middle East. In the Middle East, uh, yeah. With Russia and uh, Ukraine, it's, you know, it's more ambivalent. We're, we're still not sure what China's actual position is there. Right, right. Um, uh, do you track, uh, one of the things that I've been obsessed with uh, from, from a long-range perspective as Skift is just the changing demographics of the world. The world is getting older. Uh, you see in your part of the world, Japan as the as the leading indicator of what happens when societies get older. They don't have, you know, the fertility rates have uh, historically been very, uh, continue to be very, very low. Um, 
South Korea, probably the lowest fertility rate in the planet today, 0.8 or something. 2.1 is the replacement rate. Um, China has obviously gone through this. There's a lot of India just this year, 2023, surpassed China as the most populous country in the world. Um, from a from a demographics perspective, uh, what's your sense, uh, sort of medium to long term, on Chinese traveler in inside China as well as outbound? Yeah, that's a good question. So you mentioned two markets there. You mentioned Japan, Korea, and, and the Singapore is also is aging very very fast. It's a small market, but the Chinese market, yes, as you said, India overtook it as the most populous nation in the world. And you know, you look at the actual projection of curve for the Chinese population over the next sort of 50, 60 years, you know, it is going to contract quite significantly. But it also has a huge population of young people. And, and, and at the moment, if you're looking at a lot of the trends that are happening, the new trends that are happening domestically in terms of consumers and also travelers, you know, that's being driven by the post 90s and also the post 2000s generation. They don't tend to talk about millennials or Gen Zs. They tend to talk post in terms of uh, decade periods. Um, so things like Home rentals is very, very strong in China at the moment. A lot of that has been driven by younger people. Car rentals, exactly the same. You know, that's absolutely flying, and that's younger people as well. You look at the high-speed rail, and the interesting thing with high-speed rail in China is it's become not just about traveling from A to B. It's become the actual travel on board has become an experience. So, you know, and that's focused through social media, younger people on social media. You know, it's, it's hard to overstate just how important Chinese social media is for all aspects of consumerism, particularly travel. And, you know, that's true worldwide. I accept that. But the Chinese social media um, ecosystem hides behind a wall and we, the rest of the world doesn't know so much about it. You know, it has its own dynamics. Um, and I think that's one of the things we've probably learned this year across the world is that to really, really engage Chinese travelers going forward, you have to understand Chinese social media and the different dynamics between the different platforms. And the different platforms, like for instance, obviously we know TikTok here in this part of the world. Uh, TikTok, from what I understand, in China is very different than TikTok in, in in the rest of the world. TikTok in China is very restricted for all the reasons you can, you know, all the reasons you know well, because every platform is restricted in China. Um, for Western tourism boards today, looking at destinations, looking at, trying to track the slowly growing number of outbound tourists, what would your advice be? Well, you have to look at the mix of the platform. So you're absolutely right. You know, TikTok, Douyin is the, is the parent brand in China. And Douyin is very, very important, particularly for live streaming, uh, whether that's live stream selling or whether that's live streaming when influencers are overseas. So you have to look at the video platform. So you definitely have to look at Douyin, Show, and especially Little Red Book, Xiao Hongshu, you know, that's the most important with the travel influence with young people. That really, really focuses on new consumer trends and new travel trends, but to a slightly higher level, not just at the mass level. Uh, those are very, very important. But you also have to include in your mix Weibo and Weixin, WeChat as well. So because a lot of different influencers in China have different mixes of uh, their, their fan bases. And so some will tell you they have more users on Weibo, because that will tend to be in terms of the content that they provide. But you now, I think most travel brands are looking at Xiao Hongshu and really looking at how they can leverage those younger influencers going forward. They're not cheap. You can hire them, you know, to do work for you. But they, the rates have come down because now there's just so many influencers in China. If you go back four or five years ago, there was an elite level and their, their rates were very, very high. But no, a lot of those rates have come down because there just are so many people influencing travel 
in China. And they have a huge impact on, on the way that young people perceive destinations, perceive travel suppliers, and perceive their own experiences overseas. Well, I was going to ask this question that we, we did some stories during COVID, though, what is the ongoing role of travel influencers? I'm talking globally and may have come down, but you're saying in China continues to be a huge force. Influencers in a, in a larger sense, because the commerce is driven so much by influencers in China, or at least leisure commerce is driven so much by that. Uh, and then uh, in this case, travel as well. I think so. And I think, you know, everybody's an influencer now, you know, whether you're talking about the elite level influencers, those that actually work with brands or people just actually taking travel trips overseas, you know, right. Chinese travelers definitely look to their peers for recommendations, for tips, for advice when it goes to destinations rather than destination marketing. There is a, a bit of a perception that destination branding and tourism board marketing is, is propaganda that they don't believe. So they, they generally tend to believe their own peers that are going overseas. And also younger Chinese travelers are a bit more experimental. They're looking for things that they don't actually find on tourism board sites as well. And that has a real, if, if you do that, if you go to a country in Europe or the US and you find something that nobody else is posting, you, know, you watch your, your, your rate accelerate in terms of uh, engagement. I have a last question before we finish. Um, so one of the things we covered early on during Skift uh, in the, you know, I'm going to say 2012 to 2017 or whatever, on like how to be China ready. Hotels have to be China ready. Your uh, your food um, practices at the hotels have to be China ready. Has post-COVID any of that advice changed? Meaning are the travelers now a lot more global, so you don't need that many um uh, Chinese um, specific advice or foods or et cetera, et cetera, at your hotels or destinations uh, that you used to? Or is this That's a really good question, Rafa, because one thing that I've always been saying all year is rethink absolutely everything. But, you know, some of those specifics that you just mentioned, they still apply. Of course they do. But I think there's become a bigger division between the, the FIT market and the group travel market. Now, you really have to look, if you're looking at FIT travelers from China, you, you have to go through so much segmentation. You, if you really want to understand how they're traveling, you know, look at how they're traveling in China right now. Look at how domestic travel trends are changing. And that you can apply some of that, not all of it, but you can apply some of it to international travel. But I think you have to be prepared for the fact that uh, younger Chinese travelers are very discerning. They are very, very, they have high expectations because hotel standards, airline standards, high-speed rail train st uh, standards in China are high now. You know, they're, they're, they're not coming to Europe and to the USA and being surprised by the level of standards, quite the opposite. Right. So you've got to, you've got to overperform. Um, and you really have to look at how they use social media because that's changing all the time. And you know, I read a lot of articles in the top 10 social media trends of 2024. Well, that's the top 10 trends right now, but those will change in, in 10 days, 20 days, 30 days. You have to keep an eye on the ball about how Chinese consumerism is changing. Because I would say this, I know this is quite a contentious issue, but I think Chinese consumers are the most indulged technologically in the world, and that influences their expectation. Um, fascinating. Uh, let's end it here. Thank you. This was very informative for me, and I uh, I know this will be very informative for everybody listening as well. Uh, thank you, Gary. I hope to uh, see you soon in person at some point, as well as obviously get you back on a, on a SCIF conference or a podcast. Thank it you. It was Gary. a pleasure, Rafa. Great chatting with you. This has been the SCIF podcast. Thank you for listening.